we're setting limits and we're connecting with our child at the same time. And if you think about these stages that children go through, especially the adolescent years, if you can figure out a way to connect with your children during fights, you're going to have more opportunities for connection and for growth. Hi, brave friends. Welcome to today's practical episode with expert Matt Metcalf, who is a licensed clinical social worker, and he is the founder and owner of DBT Tri-Counties, a clinical social work group practice dedicated to the implementation of comprehensive DBT or dialectical behavior therapy. And he's also the founder and owner of Rincon DBT Family Skills Center, which provides intensive outpatient services. He is a licensed clinical social worker, like I said, who's worked with adolescents and their families for over 15 years. He has a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Utah, a master's degree in divinity from Emmridge University's Turner School of Theology, and a master's degree in social work from the University of Southern California, Dwarak Peck School of Social Work. He is a DBT Linehan Board of Certification Certified Clinician and a Beck Institute CBT Certified Clinician who has trained in CBT with the Beck Institute and DBT with Behavioral Tech. He has intensely studied and practiced these therapies in order to best support his clients with a variety of needs, such as social anxiety, panic attacks, PTSD, mood disorders, substance abuse, depression, and in providing support to those who struggle with intense emotions, which is why DBT is so great for parents and for kids both to learn the skills of DBT. Matt is passionate about providing parenting courses on how to use DBT skills when parenting. And this is a course that we have offered through We Are Brave Together, twice a six-week course with Matt Metcalf. So valuable, so practical. It teaches effective communication skills, managing emotions, managing anxiety, and there are so many practical applications. So if you've never heard about DBT, I encourage you to look into that. Today's episode, Matt is just going to talk from his experience with working with so many teenagers, what he wants parents to know about their teens and what's critical. And I know we could probably do a whole series of episodes. Matt is a wealth of knowledge, but we're going to just focus on a few in today's episode. I hope you appreciate today's conversation. Hi, Matt. Welcome to Brave Together Podcast. Hello. It's good to have you here, and I'm excited for our audience to hear what you have to say because, as you know, we're in a mental health pandemic, and there's a lot of parents wondering how best to support their teens who are struggling with depression or anxiety or cutting or suicide ideation or all of the above. And so I'm so glad that you are here to give us some, some wisdom and some tips and things that you wish parents knew. Wonderful. Well, yeah, I'm grateful to be here. Can I go ahead and just fire away? Yep, you sure can. Cool. I have tons of stuff. Well, I thought first I'd start off just a little bit about myself. So I grew up in the Ventura, California area. I had two parents that divorced when I was really young, and I spent most of my life being raised by my grandmother and my uncle. And my grandma and my uncle, they were very different. My grandmother was very strict and very forward. Uh, if you could like imagine 
like maybe like a Judge Judy type character, kind of this type of grandmother. And then my uncle was much better natured, but extremely passive and permissive, like as a parent. He was exactly what he was. He was an uncle that was having his sister's kids stay with him. So he didn't necessarily spearhead any parenting initiatives, even though he lived in the house. And then my grandmother was just from a very different generation. Uh, She was, you know, from that before the baby boomer generation, the greatest generation, so they're called. And because of that, there's a couple of things. One... I'm a lot older in spirit than maybe I actually am because I was raised by an older generation. So when I'm working with adolescents and their family, even if I'm much younger than the parents, I feel like this grandpa in the sessions usually because I'm having different ideas and perhaps values about things. And second, my father and my mother were around. They were just kind of in and out of the scene, kind of the way... Like if it were a sitcom that there was my grandma and my uncle and me and my sister, it would be like the dad and the mom are always passing through as kind of these guest characters. And my family, they had very different points of views, but they would fight all the time. And I observed that this family is very volatile and they they fight all the time. And every single one of them, one-on-one, is a pretty good human being. And I'm not saying that in every family that's true, but a lot of the times in families, there's more times where family members are being misunderstood than are necessarily maybe as bad as we think they are. And, And I think that that was kind of the segue into becoming a therapist and working with adolescents and their families, because I was able to take kind of that experience growing up and apply it towards helping other families just develop skills and really ways of looking at things so that they could be more successful in their relationships. And I'm, I'm convinced that if my family had had DBT when I was growing up, they wouldn't have had some of the conflicts that they had because they just, you don't know what you don't know. And DBT skills for parents is super useful. But the the prompt is things I wish parents knew, especially in the face of a mental health crisis during the pandemic, all the things you said. And I've put together some bullet points that I hope they really apply to parents of what maybe we might call the general population, as well as parents of children with very profound disabilities, and maybe what they might call in between. So I tried to come up with some very universal stuff. And it's, it's not necessarily too DBT oriented, but there's a lot of Well, there's not a lot of acronyms, which DBT tends to have. There's more principles and concepts that I think are just important for parents to know. And these are things where, in my experience as a therapist, I always think, what are some things that I just wish parents knew? And I have have four. I have four things. Oh, good. I can't wait to hear. Before we do that, Matt, could you explain DBT skills or what DBT is in a nutshell for our listeners who may be hearing DBT for the first time? Sure. So DBT stands for Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. It was founded and developed by Marsha Linehan in the 1990s. And while originally it was developed for women about 18 to 32 years old with borderline personality disorder, there's been extensive research on how helpful the therapy is for a number of different populations. And the universal theme for people who benefit from dialectical behavioral therapy 
are individuals with very intense emotions and intense behaviors as a result of those emotions. And particularly, I think when most people think about DBT, they tend to think about the skills groups that are done. And certainly I've done many a skills group and I have a parenting with DBT skills group that we do. So learning skills is kind of the, it's one of the assumptions of all of the theories in DBT. The assumption is that people perhaps fall short of functional in a certain area because they lack the skill or they need to perfect the skill a little bit more. And DBT skills is about teaching that. So that's kind of DBT in a nutshell. Okay, great. Thank you. Cool. You ready for the big four? Ready for the big four. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, number one is structure. Structure is, it's a word that I don't think is necessarily super sparkly when we hear the word structure. <laughs> um, sure. in, in fact, we think of something that we have to work against. Um, I'm not I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about discovering kind of what your baseline is in a day as well as your child. So if you have a structure then you know this is around the time we wake up. This is around the time we get out of bed and go to school. This is basically what we do when school is over. This is basically what we do in the evening. This is basically what we do when the evening's over. And we try to stick to that schedule as much as we can. And this really does three things that are very helpful. Number one, it kind of grounds you. I wake up very early. I'm a morning person. My wife is different. She's a night, she's a night owl. So she wakes up much later. When I wake up in the morning, I tend to have feelings of anxiety, or I feel overwhelmed, or I just might have a random thought about something that maybe isn't super important, but I want to jump on my emails and just start sending emails. And when you have kind of these things that you do every morning, especially in a row, whether that's read from a certain book that uplifts you, whether it's pray, whether it's stretch or go for a run or meditate. If you do those things in the morning, it really grounds you. So that's the first purpose to having structure. The second thing that it does is it's helpful when you take your structure and you put in things that are going to have a lot of really long-term benefits. So a, an example would be that person that goes for a run, they're going to get in better shape and they're doing it on a regular basis and they don't have to find time to do it because it's worked into their structure. This is very helpful for parenting because when we give our child structure, they have a bit of an idea of what's going on in that day. And while they may complain about the structure, as a matter of fact, they definitely will, there is a certain containment that kids have emotionally by doing a schedule on a regular basis. And it's also very, it's very normal. Like when you're walking on a path, the path is the structure and the, the bushes and the flowers and everything else. That's not the structure. That's kind of what we're looking at. And there's many people that want to leave the path for a second and maybe go into the wild, so to speak. If they do that enough, they're going to find themselves maybe not having as good of a hike as they would have if they had just stayed on the trail and kind of enjoyed the scenery. So children are going to want to go off of the structure. That's part of the natural order of things. But by keeping them on the structure, you're going to be regulating your child's emotions over time. And I've found this to be true for my two children. I have my son, William, who has very severe autism. And I have my daughter, Catherine, who is what we would call neurotypical or in the general population. And working in structure is very helpful in this way. 
And then the third benefit is that you are definitely going to get away from your structure from time to time based on what's going on. So if if everybody wakes up at seven, but then for some kind of trip or vacation, everybody has to wake up two hours earlier, we have to leave our structure in order to do something. But we always have something to go back to. And I'm I'm surprised again and again and again when I've worked with families as a family therapist, when we start having structure, we start seeing kind of order come in and we start seeing people that are kind of able to thrive. And so this is the first one, this tendency to just put in a structure. It is important to note that you don't want to have the structure that maybe somebody else thinks you ought to have. You want to put in the structure that complements you. If you're a late riser, if you enjoy your television, if you enjoy your Netflix or whatever it is you do, then make time for it. Put it in the structure and do it. You can certainly, you can have a whole day full of structured play, just depending on what you want to do. So there's, I'm not saying that structure needs to be work and dull and, and functional things all day long. In fact, I, I might be saying the opposite of that, that you can, you can plan that out. Okay. I like that. Number two is the power of validation in consequences. We must give children limits, rules, consequences, incentives, and it's just a it's just a part of it. And every parent has their own feelings about how that is. I don't think there's a lot of people where when they think about having children, they think, you know, I can't wait till I you know, meet my soulmate and settle down and have children so that I can threaten to take away their screens on a regular basis. Uh, you, you know, no. it's like, that's, that's the dream. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's the case. I think most people picture these very brief snapshots during the day where there's like a hug or an eye contact or a kind of a cherished moment. So we separate the two, or at least a lot of people do. They make consequences this one area where there's not a lot of connecting and they make validation and connecting kind of part of the good times and when people find themselves unfulfilled in their relationships with their adolescent or young adults or even their kind of older children it's because they're like you know there's not a whole lot of good times anymore and there's a lot of me saying do this differently times and I almost feel like my kid dreads my presence. I like start walking up to them and they they start tiptoeing to the side or they don't quite make eye contact and this has become the relationship. And the great anecdote for that is when it's time to have a consequence or a stern talk or just the natural repercussions of whatever has happened have to occur, you can be very validating during this process. And a lot of parents miss that opportunity in part because I don't think it's really been demonstrated or they've really seen it a lot. An example of this would be, I always use the cleaning the room example because that seems to, I think worldwide, that's one that people can connect with. You can go to your children and you can say, I told you to clean your room and you didn't do it. It's important for you to have a clean room you know, no one's going to want to live with you if you have this unclean room and you're really messy. And this is everybody else's room is pretty clean. And I want this room clean. And if you don't do it, I'm going to take away your screens. And, and this is the, and that's like the boring version. Very often there's a lot of emotion involved because the parent is frustrated, frustrated at this 
this unclean room. So you could, you could switch that around with not making it about your feelings or desire to have a whole lot of cleanliness. You can just, instead you can tell them, okay, so your room's not clean. We had a talk about it. I don't think you're going to be able to go out and do anything while the clothes are on the floor and they need to be put in the hamper. And I think in order for you to move on to do the next things that you really like, I think you're going to have to pick the clothes up off the floor and put them in the hamper, maybe make your bed. The hamper might even overfill and you might need to start a load of laundry or or something like this. And you'll get a lot of pushback, like, I don't want to, why do I have to, or whatever. And this is the moment, like, this is the point where a lot of parents make that turn turn they they try to teach them about why it should matter to them which is who knows how old your kid is going to be when they realize how important this is i mean most people don't figure out how important this is until they have their own kid that's not doing it so it's a waste of energy instead when they say they don't want to do it you can kind of remember that you don't want to do it either and that you don't like cleaning your room either and that and and you can connect with them on that you can say well i know like cleaning is it's kind of one of those necessary evils we don't we don't want to do it like i don't i don't wake up in the morning wanting to do it and you know they might counter with like well then why do i have to and you just kind of are like well it's just like cleaning like i'm a I'm a parent. This is what I'm doing. Someone's got to be the parent here. It's going to be me, but I'm totally with you on not wanting to do it. And that's a much better segue into a way to connect with your child. And depending on your level, on the child's level of functioning, my son, the same thing applies. Maybe if he's hitting or if he's grabbing items and just throwing them on the ground, I can be very mad and I can say like, no, don't, don't. And I can kind of treat him like maybe he's a cocker spaniel or something and and try to, not that I would even treat a cocker spaniel that way, but you know, I can do that or I can kind of teach him about gentle hands in a way that creates a bond in the relationship. Maybe I grab his hands and I say, okay, gentle hands, gentle hands. And then I try to get myself into a hug as fast as possible. We're setting limits and we're connecting with our child at the same time. And if you think about these stages that children go through, especially the adolescent years, if you can figure out a way to connect with your children during fights and disagreements, you're going to have more opportunities for connection and for growth. I like that. And I think it's a way of parenting that I'm sure many of us never experienced at all. So it's Mm -hmm. a learned skill and it is possible to learn that skill. Yeah. So number three and number four, these are more like mindsets than they are things to do. I, the, the first two of the four, these are more practical, like things to put into action that can help. Uh, Number three is I often find myself on this topic of that parenting is an amateur sport and that there are no professionals in parenting that you might be a professional on parenting or you might be a professional on children or on adolescence, but there's nobody who has children of their own that is doing it like a pro. Within 24 hours of this podcast, I will violate probably everything that I've laid out here as something to do, and I'll do it on a regular basis. And I think the implication of parenting is an amateur sport is that you can have a lot of learning experiences 
by the things that you do. And for crying out loud, most people become parents when they're pretty young and they, they don't have a lot of experience except for maybe growing up and a few young adult experiences, maybe a few jobs or something. But most people, when they think about their level of life experience, when they had their first child, they usually think, oh man, most parents will even probably say, I think you have to be an experience like that to even go down the road of having a child and trying to have kids in a family. Because by the time your kids are older, you're like, maybe I wouldn't or, or something like that. But that's the point. Parenting's an amateur sport especially if you have a child with profound disabilities, because now you don't even have a prototype that you're looking at. Like you don't even have a lot of shows or examples or stories to really give you like you're, you're just trailblazing. And while you're trailblazing, you're going to look very foolish and very amateurish, especially in the eyes of a lot of people that don't know as much as you do about this particular child. And it's important to recognize that there's this fine line between the two. And number four is, to me, one of the biggest tragedies that I find when I talk with parents, and I've talked with parents from all, all, all kinds of places. It's sad to me when I meet parents who feel like they're a bad parent because their child is struggling. I think that's hardwired into the human species because we kind of are like, healthy kid, healthy life. Like if, if we have a healthy child, it means we've protected them. It means that we've, we've done our job to both protect and help them. And it's just not true. Like human beings are, we're not bears. We're not, we're not wolves in the forest or, you know, we're not canaries. Like maybe this would apply to the animal world, but for human beings, how our child is doing is is probably actually not a very good measurement of how effective our parenting is. I used to, so I used to say when I worked in like inpatient settings that when parents would be dropping off their kid to an inpatient place where they would maybe be for five or eight weeks or something, it's such a hard day. And what makes that day even harder is that they feel like they almost feel like they have detention or like they're getting suspended or something like they're, they're bringing their kid to inpatient and they feel like they failed. They feel like they've done something wrong. And, you know, I used to tell them some of the best parents I've ever known have been parents who are currently working with their children in inpatient. And I think we all have seen this, but we, we don't quite internalize it. We know plenty of individuals where when they were young, they were extremely difficult and required a lot of very advanced parenting. And their parents always looked like they had just been thrown out of a moving vehicle at every moment of their life while their kid is going through these very turbulent times. You can tell that the parents, the parents might express that they feel like they're on this losing team. And they're not. They're actually doing very well. And we all know kids that are what appear to be excellent or like a dream child. And their parents are just these normal people that just that just have them not necessarily doing anything all that special. So that would be the end of the big four structures. Number one, validate with consequences. Number two, remembering that parenting is an amateur sport for number three and that mistakes are okay. And number four, that you are not a good parent based on how well your child is doing at in the current moment. Those are excellent points, Matt. Thank you so much. Is there anything that you wish you could say, and maybe you do say this when you are working with maybe some 
stubborn or difficult parents? What what makes an ideal parent to work with when a child is suffering and you're doing family therapy or maybe you're doing also some uh, just with the parents, you know, you're doing some parent coaching. What is the best mindset, attitude, or disposition that a parent, I don't want to say should, is ideal or helpful so that that parent can also support their child? For example, you would probably say, if you hear a parent say, fix my child, I don't need therapy, that's a red flag, right? So that's yeah. not yes. you know, something that you're hoping for when you're working with families or parents. So can you give me one yes. nugget? So the nugget here is that when we have a lot of perspective on parenting, parenting is really a handoff of family values across the generations. That's that's really what parenting is like philosophically. So when my daughter is driving me crazy and like she's 10, you have to remind yourself like, you know, she's probably going to be the one planning my funeral, you know, and that it's one moment they're little kids and they're staggering along and you're afraid of everything that they might get into it and get hurt. Not too long later, they're coming by your house and making sure that you have enough supplies because you're 80 and they're stopping by and that this is really a relationship between two equals. You're just never the same at any place in time because of how far apart you are in age. So the best thing a parent could have is this idea that I'm raising my future partner in this family, or I'm raising another generation of my own family that's going to be around possibly raising other generations long after I'm gone. And so even when kids are acting up or acting very foolishly, there's kind of this level of respect that has to go to them. If we do our job well, then when they grow up, they are, you know, there could be a lot of insight that that you could have a lot of insight while raising your kid about what they could become. And this is true, even if the outcome isn't necessarily all that ideal, because that happens too. I think it's more of treating the next generation with respect is the is the takeaway. Hmm. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Matt, where can everybody find you if they're interested in taking your class or your course? So there's two agencies that I'm out of. I have a adolescent intensive outpatient program that's virtual and that's a comprehensive DBT program and that's called Wingcon DBT Family Skills Center. I can be contacted that way. My private practice is DBT Tri-Counties and there's the YouTube channel of Parenting with DBT that people can subscribe to. And then of course, there's just fortunate venues like this, like stuff like We Are Brave Together and whatnot. But if you look up DBT Tri-Counties, if you look up Rincon DBT, and definitely parenting with DBT. If you look up parenting with DBT, you'll likely find me. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do. And thank you for stopping by the show. It's wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening today. Do us a favor and leave us a review and a rating so that this podcast can get into the ears and the hearts of more and more moms. Did you know that Brave Together Podcast is an extension of our nonprofit organization called We Are Brave Together? We Are Brave Together serves an international community of caregiving moms by offering support groups that are virtual and in-person, educational resources, and low-cost weekend retreats and we offer retreat scholarships. 
We represent all 50 of the United States and 21 countries around the world. We are here to remind you that you are not alone. You are braver and stronger than you think, and that girlfriends who get you are sacred and mandatory. To join us today, go to wearebravetogether.org. Our support and sisterhood await you.